Well, let me ask you a question as we begin the message this morning, and that is this. What makes a person a disciple of Jesus Christ? What determines if you're a disciple of Christ? And that's an important question to be able to answer because the fact of the matter is, as church people, we have a commission by our Lord, and the commission is to go and make disciples. And unless we are a disciple of Jesus Christ, we have no possibility of making other people disciples of Jesus Christ. And so the only ones who are disciples are those who know what it means to be a disciple. So let's talk about that today. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? And what we're going to find out in the passages that we're going to look at today is there's really two things that determine if a person is a disciple of Christ. It's do they know Jesus for who he is and are they willing to follow him for where he says to go? That's the thing that makes a disciple a disciple. Having a, a, an accurate confession of who Jesus is so we know the real Jesus, and that's really what our whole series of, of the, in the Gospel of Mark has been about, getting to know the real Jesus. And also, are we willing to make an absolute commitment to do what Jesus Christ tells us to do? Well, you know what? Those two things come together if we're a disciple of our Lord Jesus Christ. So let's look at that. The first thing, as I said, is that we have to know who Jesus is. We have to have an accurate confession of who he is. And we saw that a couple weeks ago, didn't we? We saw that Jesus was on the road to uh, Caesarea Philippi with his disciples, and along the road he stops and he asks them a question, and he says, who do men say that I am? And they said, well, some say that you're John the Baptist come back to life. Others say that you're Elijah who has now returned to earth. Others say that you're a prophet. And that's when Jesus Christ asked this question, who do you say that I am? He's asking his disciples this question, who do you say that I am? And, and really, th that question comes at the pinnacle. If you remember the, the Gospel of Mark, it, it's leading up, the first half of the book is leading up to this confession of who do you say that I am. And the next side of the, of the Gospel, the next eight chapters, goes away now that you know who I am. This is how you are to respond to who I am. So that's the whole point of Mark's gospel, is leading up to this great confession by Peter. And the confession by Peter is simply this. You are the Christ. Now Mark, Matthew, that's Mark's. Matthew will expound on that a little bit. And Matthew will tell us that Jesus asked Peter, who do you say I am? And Peter said to him, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And what Jesus tells to him is this, real important when it comes to getting to know the real Jesus, is that you didn't get that on your own, Peter. You got that through my Father in heaven. In fact, here's how he says it. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And what that tells us is this, that the right understanding of who Jesus is, the right confession about the reality of our Lord, is that it comes to us not through our own effort and not through our own understanding, but it's given to us as a gift from the Heavenly Father. And so when we talk about who Jesus is, having the right understanding of who Jesus is, we have to understand that it comes as a gift to us. The right confession is that we know him because God has revealed him to us. And so here's the disciples. What, is, what do they know about Jesus? That he is the Christ, 
that he is the son of the living God, that he was sent from the Father, that he came to take away our sins, and, that he, and through him that we have the way given to us that we can spend eternity with him and the Father. That's the reality and the understanding of who Jesus Christ is. In fact, Warren Wearsby, if you know that name, he's written a number of, of Christian books over the years. Warren Wearsby said it like this, it's impossible to be wrong about Jesus and right with God. And so what he's saying is that our faith rests upon an accurate understanding of who Jesus Christ is. And so if you're here today, you call yourself a disciple of Jesus Christ, that you see yourself as a follower of Jesus Christ, one of the things that needs to be true for you is that you have to have an accurate understanding of who Jesus Christ is. Now that can grow over the years. We, we get our understanding continues to get bigger and bigger of Jesus as we walk with him more and more. But you have to have the basic understanding of who Jesus Christ is, that he really is God come to earth. I mean, there's a lot of people that will be in pulpits today that will give an understanding of Jesus that's not the accurate picture of who Jesus is. And they'll say that he was a man. They'll say that he was an example. They'll talk about him as being a man who received the spirit of God upon him at his baptism and left him when he, when he, before he died. And they'll be preaching that Jesus from the pulpits today around our country. And we know that that will take place. But that's not what we're going to hear here in this pulpit. Because what you want to hear and what I need to proclaim to you is who the real Jesus is. And the real Jesus is the Jesus who is from God, is God, and came to us to bring, bring salvation to each and every one of us. And so our faith hinges on us having an accurate understanding of who Jesus is. The other thing about being a disciple is it not only rests upon an accurate understanding of Jesus, but it also rests upon an absolute commitment to what Jesus says. Now that's what brings us, and that's where we get in the passage today that we're going to be looking at today. Because in the passage that we're going to look at today, Jesus is going to tell us what it's required of us to follow him. What it's going to require of us to be a disciple of his when it comes to listening to what he has to say. So if you've got your Bible... Or if you, look, you can look up on the screen as well. We're going to be looking at chapter 8 of, of Mark still, and we're going to look at verse 34. And there it is up on the screen. And it, here's how it begins. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Now it begins by saying that he called the crowd to him along with his disciples, which means that this invitation wasn't only given to a select few. It was given to anybody and everybody who was willing to listen. It was given to anybody and everybody who was willing to respond. See, and, and so the, the, when the Bible says, whosoever will may come, that's true. The invitation is given to everybody. But if you notice in the invitation, there's terms on which you respond to the invitation. And you have to respond in the terms that Jesus Christ asks us to respond. We can come, but we have to come on his terms. He decides what determines a disciple, and we accept his decision. He determines what it means to be a disciple, and we agree with what he's asking. And so when it comes to being a disciple, what it has to do with also is us hearing what he has to say and following what he tells us to do. And that's what it says right here. So let's look at these three things that Jesus highlights. First of all, Jesus requires us to what? Deny ourselves. Now, all of us have some understanding of what that means. But literally, it reads like this, that we are disowning ourselves, 
I mean, in the Greek, it's really a powerful, powerful word because it has to do with the idea that, that we disown what our life was like. In other words, we let him choose so that we no longer associate with what we were doing, we no longer associate with who we were doing things with, and we no longer associate with how we thought about him. And so there's things in our past that now are left behind because now we deny that and we say yes to the new things that we have in Jesus Christ. In other words, to deny yourself is simply this. I want nothing to do with my former life. I want nothing to do with my past. What was th that was then, and this is now. And so when we, when we talk, or when our Lord talks about discipleship, being a follower of his, He's talking about a radical change that comes in our lives where we understand, I can't take this with me, I've got to leave it behind, and I've got to begin this new thing over here. <clears throat> now, that's a challenge for a lot of people. And it was, to a, it was to a man named Mickey Cohen. I told you the story before. Mickey Cohen was a, a gangster who was kind of in charge of Southern California in the 1940s and 1950s. And he was kind of a, the main boss there in, in Southern California. Now, he had a, 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 a man in his, in his group or a businessman that he knew who went to a Billy Graham crusade in 1949. And at that crusade, he met Jesus Christ. And he gave his life to living for Christ. And he was so excited about what had happened to him that he wanted to share it with, with his boss, Mickey Cohen. So he brings back the news and he tells Mickey Cohen, Mickey, you know, all you have to do is accept Christ as your Savior. He'll forgive you of all your sins and he gives you the promise that you will have life after death. And Mickey responds like many do, is that all there is to do? And he says, yes, it's a free gift given to us from Jesus Christ, God's Son. Salvation is a free gift from God. Well, for Mickey, that was a hard, hard uh, a gift to pass up. And so he decided that he had become a Christian. And you know what? Word spread throughout the Christian community back in the 1949 and the early 50s that here this gangster had now become a believer in Jesus Christ and people were excited all about it. But it wasn't long before they realized that the new confession that he was making didn't kind of coincide with what he was, how he was living. He still contained to continue to have a relationship with the same people that he had. He continued to do the same jobs, the same work, running the casinos. He, he continued to, you know, use the same language that he had in the past. And in fact, there was even reports that he was continuing to knock off people like he did. And so somebody who was a little bit braver came up to him and said, Nicky, or Mickey, you can't keep doing this. When you have Christ, it means that your life has changed, that what you did in the past doesn't apply to what you do now. You have to leave that behind. And Mickey's response was this. Nobody told me I had to change my career when I became a Christian. You have Christian athletes. You have Christian businessmen. Why can't you have a Christian gangster? Okay? I guess I just don't want anything to do with Christianity. This is the challenge, isn't it, sometimes, to being a disciple of Christ, that we have to be willing to understand that our old way of life is done, and there's a new way of living that's before us. And so Jesus begins by saying, I'm going to invite you to be my disciples, and if you would come after me, the first thing that you need to do is you need to deny yourself. You need to let go of your past and take a hold of the future. Here's the other thing that he says that they need to do, is that you need to take up your cross. Now, you know, 
I have heard many funny things that people have said about what it means to take up the cross. And people have had all kinds of ideas that, you know, you bear with certain people and, and all, I mean, all this kind of thing. You know, we don't understand it as clearly as they would have understood it because what, the first thing that they probably would have heard when Jesus said, you have to take up your cross, is they would have thought about the cross piece that would be a part of a, a cross for crucifixion, that it was required of the person who was going to be killed through crucifixion, that they were required to carry the cross piece on their shoulder. And so, in fact, Jesus Christ himself did that, didn't he? He carried the cross piece on his shoulder when he went to the cross. And eventually, he, he wasn't able to have the strength to do it any, uh, the whole way. Somebody else had to carry it the rest of the way. But he had the cross piece on his shoulder. And that's, that's the picture that's being, you're carrying something that you're bringing so that you can die. And so the idea was that you were walking toward your death. That's what you're really talking about. Not just that you're going to have some bad things in life happen to you and you've got to bear with it, but the idea was that you are walking toward your death. In fact, uh, Jesus would have had a, a, a living example of how terrible that was because when he was probably about five years old, maybe up to ten years old, there was a, a, a Galilean named Judas the Galilean who led a revolt against Rome, and Rome pushed it down. They crushed it under their power. And, and the general who led the force against him was a man named Barris. And, and, he, and he decided just to make sure that you guys will never think about coming against Rome in a rebellion again. He rounded up 2,000 Galileans. And then in an intervals along the, the major roads, he crucified 2,000 of them where he had every one of them carry the cross out to the place where they were going to be crucified. Jesus would have seen that as a boy. He would have witnessed that as he walked along the Galilean roads. And so when it talks about dying, being crucified, Jesus is making clear that if, if we're going to be a follower of his, what we need to do is not only deny ourselves, say no to us and our past, but we need to be willing to walk into the, the death experience that's required of us as well. Now, Paul understood that, didn't he? Because Paul says in Galatians 2.20, 2 he says that I have been crucified with Christ. I have been crucified with Christ, past tense, but I no longer live, present tense. And so he's saying that I've come alive through the crucifixion that I had with Jesus Christ. He went through the crucifixion and he came out alive. And so when it comes to the disciples, what is it? It's owning ourselves, our past, it's accepting the cross that lays before us, and then it's, Jesus says, and you follow me, and you follow me. Which means that what? We walk the pathway that Jesus walked. Wherever he leads, we follow. Wherever he goes, we're behind. And so he sets the direction. He sets the pathway. We walk with him. We do what he tells us to do. And so it, really, it's, it's this idea that it's no longer about you and me, is it? Now it's about Christ, that he's the one that we're following in our lives. Now, that's the invitation. Talk about an uninviting invitation, right? I mean, who's going to want to do that? Okay, be my disciples, follow after me, and what it means is you've got to put away your old life and take on a new life. You've got to die to yourself and, and come alive to me. Nobody is going to want to follow him hearing that, that kind of invitation. 
Nothing about your life is going to be blessed. You're going to have peace in God. You're going to have, you know, all this kind of blessings upon your life. Jesus brings nothing up about that at all. It's all these negative things. It's like, I don't want that. I don't want that. I don't want that. I don't want that. So why would anybody even think about following Jesus? Well, Jesus understood. I think Jesus understood that, that people would be turned off a bit. So what does he go on to say? Here's what he says. For whoever would, would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. In other words, he gives them this paradox that if you're willing to die, you're going to find life. You know, our Lord was really good at giving these kind of paradoxical statements, wasn't he? Uh, the Bible says about if, if, if you want to be exalted by God, you've got to humble yourselves before him and wait for God to exalt you. And so the idea, the way to go up is for us to go down, and then God will bring us up. The, the paradoxical statement is that, you know, it's more blessed to give than receive. I mean, we live in a world where people love to receive things. But the paradox of, of the gospel is that it's better, it's blessed to give than to receive. I mean, Jesus is going to say in the next chapter that we get to, he's going to say, if anyone wants to be first, they must be the very last, and they must be servant to all. And so the way for us to experience, you know, greatness in life is not by having people serve us. It's by having us a servant heart where we serve them. And then Jesus is actually going to say to his disciples, in just a, a short period of time, he's going to hear them arguing about who's the greatest, and he's going to say to them, unless you turn and become like a little child, you will not even enter into the kingdom of God. I mean, it's not like he's saying that you're, you're not in the kingdom of God. He's saying that you won't even enter into it. I mean, when I hear you arguing among yourself about who's the greatest, what it makes me think is that you don't understand anything about the reality of what the kingdom of God is all about. And unless you turn and become like a child, you're not going to even be a part of my kingdom. The paradox is that we can't come into Christ's kingdom unless we come as children. We have to give up our adult understanding and we have to come as a child. Those are the things that are being talked about here Anyone who, who, who is going to be a disciple, the paradox is that you're going to have to be able to give up your life in order to be able to find life. And so Christianity is this huge paradox in so many ways. But as I said, the greatest paradox is the fact that real life is found in dying. That goes against everything that we know, isn't it? Because within every single one of us, there's an intrinsic innate desire to live, to survive, to continue on with this life. None of us have a, a desire to, that says, you know what, I want to die. I mean, we put those people in the category of, of uh, suicidal uh, thinking, that it's illogical and it's inappropriate. But here it talks about that we have to be willing to die to find life. And again, the, the enforced within every human being is the drive to stay alive. 
You know, last February, February 4th, there was a, a man who was out jogging in the Horse Tooth Mountain open space near Fort Collins, Colorado. And as he's jogging, he hears a noise behind him. He stops and he looks around, and there's a mountain lion who's ready to spring. And immediately as he stops, the mountain lion attacks him. And so he's fighting off this mountain lion, and according to the Colorado Parks and Wildlife, this unidentified uh, uh, a man told investigators the initial attack by the mountain lion was against his head and against his hands. And so he was fighting off the, the, the teeth of this mountain lion on his face and on his hands. The claws were going after his, his abdomen and his back, and yet... In that battle, he was able to get his hands around the neck of this mountain lion, and he was able to strangle the mountain lion to death. Now, they could not believe that this could have happened, that this man could have summoned that much strength. And so the parks, Colorado Parks and Wildlife Department had an individual come in to do an independent investigation to find the cause of the death of this mountain lion. And what they did find out is that this man actually strangled this wild animal to death. Now, why they were so amazed at that is because the, the, one of the experts in mountain lions, or whoever he'd become an expert, I don't know, but an expert said that for that to have happened, for him to be able to have strangled this mountain lion, it would have taken anywhere between three to five minutes for him to be able to strangle it, and during that time, the full ferocity of the animal would be attacking him for at least two or three minutes of that five-minute period. And so the mountain lion would have been fighting back with all its primal fury to, you know, save its life. Now, what motivated the man? Well, obviously what motivated him is he wanted to live, didn't he? The fear and the courage that happened is because he was finally wanting to live, and he was willing, out of that desire to live, he was willing to exert all his strength in order to take that animal by its neck and to suffocate it, strangle it to the point where it was dead. Now, why do I tell you that story? Because it's just proof that jogging can kill you. <laughs> no, that's not the reason. It illustrates a point that within every one of us is, is this battle to live, isn't there? That, you know, for him, Jesus to say that in order to find life, you've got to go through death. Every one of us, so first of all, our statement is, I'm not doing that. I'm not going there. And within us is a desire for living. We're willing to give up almost everything in order to survive because that's a passion that puts within us. And yet, here's Jesus telling us that if we want to find life, if we're really going to gain life, we have to be willing to lose our life for him. And so here's what he says. Look at it again. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever wants to lose his life for me, or whoever is willing to lose his life for me and the gospel will save it. And then he goes on. For what good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for a soul? See, it's the idea that caused, it was that idea that caused Jim Elliot to say these famous words. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And then he actually adds this, he is no fool who parts with that which he cannot keep when he is sure to be recompensed with that which he can't lose. 
See, that's the motivation for us to say, Jesus, I'll accept your invitation. I will deny myself, take up the cross, and I will follow you. There's the motivation for us to do that. I'm going to give up what I can so that I can gain what I can't keep so that I can gain what will give me eternal life. And if you're a disciple here today, you've made that decision. And we know people who've made that decision, don't we? And many of us have. One of the ones who's inspired me is a man that, that I learned about just in reading some of biographies was a man named George Greenfield. George Greenfield lived a long time ago. He lived in the late 1800s. And, and around the turn of the century, he was with an organization called the London Missionary Society, and he heard them describe the fact that when it came to bringing the gospel to different areas of the world, the, the villagers who lived along the Congo River had never heard of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Three million people, as estimated, lived along the Congo River, but there had never been a missionary that went up the Congo to bring the good news of Jesus to those natives who lived around, along that river. And so, as these young men heard that report, 25 of them said, you know what, we're going to vow that when we are done with our training, we will go out and we will bring the gospel upriver to all those villagers who are along the Congo River. 25 of them made that vow. When the day came for them to go, 24 of them backed out. One of them did not. The one that didn't back out was George Greenfield. And he gathered together some men who were going to go with him, and he gathered together a new wife, got married. Before he even got to the mouth of the river, though, his wife got malaria as she came into that region, and she died before he ever started his way up the river. Uh, before long, it was so hard for any of the men to get to bring the, the boat that they were on to go up the river that they all decided we just need to turn back and they, they decided that th th they would not go any further. And so they abandoned George Greenfield. George said, I'm, I'm not stopping, I'm going to keep going and he tried even against the, the intensity of the insects that were battling them, against the, 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 uh, the thickness of the dense grasses that were in the river. One mile later, George Greenfield realized this is an impossible task. So he went back to London Missionary Society. He went back to London. But he didn't go back defeated. He went back with a new strategy, and he decided that what we need is a whole different kind of boat. Rather than a deep-hauled boat, we need a flat-bottom boat. And so he asked them to design that boat and then to ship the parts over to the mouth of the Congo River and then he would have it assembled with the, his crew there and then together they would go up the, the river and they'd bring the gospel to the people up the river. And so they sent over the parts, they assembled the boat together. Uh, at this point he had a new wife uh, with him as well. And so they headed up the river and before long as he began to bring the gospel from village to village to village and they were able to do it, uh, a number of resistant things were taking place. People, men were shot, and, and, and people, men, some of the men uh, got these diseases. Fourteen of them in a short period of time lost their lives. The news went back to the London Missionary Society. They said, George, you can't go any further. you got to turn back. The word came to George Greenfield, and here's his response. He said, it's either advance or retreat, as I understand it. Sir, if it's retreat, uh, you can count me out. I will not be party to it. So he kept going. Some of the people pulled out. He kept going, and he kept going up the river. It took him 15 years 
to get all the way to the very uh, end of the river. And, and in that time, he shared the gospel with a variety of different villagers along the way. It wasn't easy. Uh, more people were killed along the way. He, he was attacked by some of the natives as well. His wife uh, lived for that time, but all of his kids, he had four kids, they all died from diseases. None of the other people died from diseases, but they just kept going and kept going and kept going. Finally, in 1905, George Greenfield writes this in his diary. Just 21 years ago, <clears throat> I love how he says that, just 21 years ago, rather than like, oh, 21 difficult years. He says, no, just 21 years ago, I came to the foot of this cliff. The natives drove me off then with their spears. Today, as I sailed into port, they welcomed me with singing, I'll hail the power of Jesus' name. You know how many people he's talking about when it says that they sang the power of Jesus' name? He's talking about 10,000 converts who came to Christ because he was willing to take the gospel up the Congo River in order to make disciples for Jesus Christ. You know, if you would go to the British Museum today, the British Maritime Museum today, and look up on the wall, you would see the name George Greenfield. And underneath the name would be this inscription. The first man to, to go sail a ship up the Congo River. The first man to ever sail a ship up the Congo River. Well, you know what they left out, don't you? It says nothing about why he did it in order to bring the good news to the villagers who lived along the banks of that river. And so who's George Greenfield? You know what I want to say? A disciple of Jesus Christ. A man who was willing to deny himself, take up his cross, and follow Jesus. You think George Greenfield is going to be disappointed on the day of, of that he meets the Lord? He's going to be overjoyed if he was asked, was it worth it, George? To give up all? I mean, will he say that, no, it wasn't worth it? No, he would say, I'll do it in a heartbeat again. <clears throat> I'll do it again. That's the heart of a disciple. And when he says, and on that day when he stands before the Lord, you think he's going to be ashamed of what he did? No shame at all. You know, how about those other 25, those 24, really? What, did, what are they going to say to the Lord that day? Well, I thought about doing it, but it seemed too hard of a task. So I wasn't willing. I heard your voice calling me, but I just didn't want to listen. It'll be a whole different day for them than it, was, that it will be for George Greenfield. He gave his life to that which counted for everything. As I said at the beginning of the message, it takes disciples to make disciples, doesn't it? And nobody who's not a disciple will ever, ever bring somebody into discipleship with Jesus Christ. And so you and I have a call in our lives to become disciples, to know who Jesus is, to confess that who he is is really who he is for us, and then to do what he tells us to do. And if we can be that kind of a person, if we can be that kind of disciple, we have the potential of bringing many people into the kingdom of God. Because what did Jesus say? It's disciples who make disciples. And he's saying, I'm sending you out to make disciples of all nations. That's the call in our lives. That's what Jesus wants us to do, to simply be a disciple who makes disciples. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, I want to thank you again for the power of your word and how it changes people's lives and how it calls us to a task that is beyond our understanding, beyond our abilities, and yet it's a task that you will supply your power to achieve. And Father, I pray that each one of us will understand that as we've been called to be your disciples, that we've been called to make disciples as well. And so that we'll go forth and bring the good news to others. And so, Father, and the, 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 the reward for us, we know the reward is that one day we'll stand before you and receive the joy of you saying to us, well done, good and faithful servant. Help us be those kind of people who find great joy in serving you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand together as we close in song.